Hello. I haven't got my specs on, so I can't read anything out. My own personal bumblebee. Buzz. Can we crack on, because I want to go to bed. This is Refigure with Chris and Reefa. A weekly dive into our favourite bits of culture, tech and diversity. Hello, welcome to Refigure, the arts, tech, culture and diversity podcast with me, Reefa. And me, Christopher. And this is the final episode of season two of Refigure. No. Yep. We're at number 15, so we're going to stop and take a few weeks break before we come back with season three. Probably. If people want to give us a review or tell us how much they like it, it makes it all the more better for us to keep going. <laughs> so this week we're going to talk about American sitcom Veep which we watched six series of in like two days. Yeah, we, we pinched the whole lot. We went to the Tate Modern to see Olafur Eliasson. That's how I'm pronouncing it. His amazing exhibition called In Real Life. That's on until January, so you definitely have loads of time to go and see it at least once. And also we're going to be talking about Aziz and Zari's new stand-up show that is on Netflix at the moment. That's like a packed show to we end might. with. This week we watched six series <laughs> of the political comedy Veep. It's an American sitcom, I suppose. It's kind of like The Office, but it's about the vice president to the United States of America. That's how it starts, except it's the first time that a woman has taken that role. The actress is Julia Louise Dreyfus, who was in Seinfeld all those years ago. Anyway, she looks great in it, and it's a fantastic comedy written by Anando Inucci, and he, if you're fans of the Thick of It, W1A... Uh, things like that, you would really enjoy it because it's sort of a behind the scenes of a woman who is starts off as VP and then she runs for president and her team are bonkers. What goes on behind the scenes is bonkers too. What did you think of it, Chris? Veep obviously grew out of the success of uh, Thick of It and the film In The Loop. Armando Yanucci and his team, which is people like Chris Addison and satirical British writing staff, uh, went to the States and apparently they first tried to make an American version of The Thick of It, just a direct American version, without Yanucci involved at all, and it was a total disaster and it didn't make it to the air. And then and then he had another go and went over and pitched Veep being the first woman vice president who kind of becomes VP on the coattails of a president. Anyway, um, it starts like that. Yanucci was in, in charge for the first four or five seasons and then he left and then it was finished off by an American team. Although a few of the writers like Chris Addison stayed on and directs some of the episodes. But at the beginning, I really loved it. I think it's really funny and I love that kind of poetry of swearing and extreme language that Yanucci does better than anyone else. Like there are a few characters in there who are completely horrible, calling each other nasty things the whole time, but they do it in such a sort of beautiful poetic way it's really funny and obviously it's got a kind of Sarah Palin-esque 
uh, kind of framing to it. And when they first started making it, it was before all the current stuff with Trump and the change of uh, the American discourse to lunatic. And so a lot of that just felt like a continuation of what they'd done really well on the thick of it. It just felt like really strong satire. So it's right up my street. I hugely loved it. I was really falling for some of those characters, even though they're not that likeable, especially Anna Schlimsky's character, and enjoying their journey, even though they're kind of unpleasant. Uh, what did you think of it? I really enjoy the fact that the main character is this quite glamorous woman, but she's a real power whore as well. Like, she loves power, but she's really um, unpleasant a lot of the time. Like, she doesn't pull her punches. She's not like the character in Parks and Rec, for example, Amy Poehler, that in charge of a team and wants everybody to like her. This woman doesn't care if anybody doesn't like her. And it's because she comes... Well, this isn't my take on everybody like this, but I'm just saying this particular character comes from wealth. She's very, very privileged. She's been very spoiled her whole life. And it feels like she just knows this is her place. Like, So she thinks like a man. And there's a book that just came out recently called, called Think Like a White Man. And apparently it's funny, <laughs> but it's also true. So it's like she has the confidence. So for example, there's a whole storyline where she's got this bit on the side who is her trainer her personal trainer and she starts sort of taking advice from him but he's like a sort of self-help guru or into that sort of health and fitness but he's also really thick so she keeps taking him to like functions and having some sort of influence over her but as soon as she realizes or it just dawns on her and she does this a number of times in these series where it dawns on her that that person who she is getting a lot out of the relationship is somehow detrimental to her she just quietly says to one of her aides get rid of him you know not not literally get rid of him but you know just let him down easy and like just say goodbye to him where you think that she's a typical woman who is somehow being taken for a ride by anybody like uh, there's this brilliant scene at the beginning where you think everything's chaotic in her work life she's not listening to her team her advisors and one of them dan who's this sort of pound shop clooney type he (laughs) he has a proper meltdown at her and everybody's looking at her and in a in an environment where people swear and shout and are rude to each other a little bit you know or they do things behind each other's back or they don't invite you know there's no courtesy in this world when somebody freaks out at the vice president of the united states in front of the whole team and just shouts at her and tells her that she's stupid and she doesn't understand and she needs to just make a decision you know the whole room goes completely silent and just looks at him and she fires him straight away she's she she's a real strong woman she's also got dark hair and she's really small and she struts around in heels and bodycon dresses and she's just really sexually and politically confident in a way that you very rarely see and it reminds me a bit of like the dramas that we've been watching like the good wife and the, the good fight and those sort of more serious dramas but at the same time She's from a comedy heritage, you know, like she is a big player in the comedy world. Like if you're a fan of Seinfeld, which I never really was, I never really got it, but she's just got 
timing, like the way that all the actors, that ensemble are like brilliant. Like they're really funny. It makes me want to go back and watch The Thick of It though. The whole thing is that she's quite ruthless in it. That's my point. And I enjoyed that. It's critically acclaimed and it's won loads of awards in the American TV world for that kind of level of nuance in a comedy performance and the fact that she's portraying a very rarely seen character, but also not doing it... It's not that you're not sympathetic with her. She just has no qualms about allowing the unpleasant side of that character to be seen. But in many ways, she has more of the characteristics of Malcolm Tucker. Like, she has more, like, influence and power and is more ruthless than in our British political comedies where it's like the person behind the throne is the one that with the power. Right, that's what I'm thinking anyway. Uh, I had another thing to say and I've forgotten. You really see the difference when an Anando Nucci stops writing for it, where new writers come in and suddenly it just deteriorates really fast. The end of the fifth series is a basically, spoiler, she doesn't win. Okay, so that's when the series should have ended. First of all, the character that we've grown to sort of admire and enjoy watching, she starts falling over. There's sort of a live, like, actual sex scene. It was like the writers wrote a list on a whiteboard of every single topic that could be offensive. It was turned into a complete hello hello fest it was ridiculous there's a whole scene where she finds out her husband's sleeping or her ex-husband's sleeping with the artist that's painting her that there's a library that she's supposed to be getting money for that it looks like a vagina it's just absolute toss the stuff that annoys me is that it's so lazy writing it's like how are we going to make this offensive i.e what they think is funny and turn it up a bit more just so many things went wrong with it that I just felt like betrayed and I hate that when that happens. It's almost like people were saying about Game of Thrones isn't it? It's so so many moments were out of character so I had a couple of thoughts about that one was they had an opportunity to really change some of those relationships. She's gone from being the acting president of the United States to being nobody, to being a former president. But also, at the end of season five, there's a fundamental financial relationship change between her and her daughter, who throughout the series she's been a total dick to always. And now, what you were left with in the sort of cliffhanger of season five, or kind of thinking that the show was over, was she's no longer going to have any power. She'll no longer have any of her useless team but she won't have any money or power her daughter's been empowered so when it started season six which is starts a little bit later like a year later you think well they're going to build whole new relationships now and that's going to be the interesting thing and it will be fascinating to see how she survives when her daughter is the one dolling out her monthly allowance then they kind of brush all that under the carpet and one of the fundamental problems with that is right through the five series even though she was horrible to her team and they were useless at their job and they hated it there was always a believable reason for them to stay i.e. that she was getting more and more powerful and that she had a chance of becoming the first woman elected president of the United States and that was a reason to cling on to this incredibly toxic situation but then after she's out of power they actually put half the team still in place around her for absolutely no reason no reason and have the others kind of interacting in ways that they just would not so what they do is they use loads of writerly tricks to maintain the same set of relationships that they were playing with before actually massively to the detriment of the show at that point what they should have done 
quite obviously, it seemed to me, really obviously, was change all those relationships. I completely agree with you about the way the comedy changed. What Armando Iannucci is a genius at doing is using language to make edgy language and edgy people very funny. And after a while, you start to feel for them because he builds these rich characters out of... Like, that's the whole magic point about Malcolm Tucker over the seasons of The Thick of It. It's by the end, you're kind of rooting for him and you love him. And then he can go on and be Doctor Who. You know, you've created a magic thing. They pick targets, didn't I they? I do have disrespect for them. <laughs> yeah, they pick because, targets. let's face it, it's just lazy writing to have suddenly characters where they never needed to mention that there was a black man in the room, right? That nerdy character, one of their sort of interns... Is get Richard? Pro- Richard gets yeah. promoted throughout the series and he's the one with two PhDs, but they're just always underestimating him just because of his personality in the programme. And then they just start bringing in all these like weird scenarios like the fact that the woman dating the daughter is a native american and suddenly there's all these stereotypes in the baby room that they've got like um dream catchers and stuff in them there's a whole scenario where she seems to be in the middle east on a yacht and then she gets she goes to suddenly to sudan to meet a woman who's supposed to be under house arrest who's living in a mud hut and everybody suddenly turns super racist like including the woman herself who was the president of the united states starts patting black children on the head and saying oh i like your fluffy hair i mean it's unbelievable the level of crapness in this series it was like a whole different i'm so angry about it because it was such a different um (laughs) it's a different program anyway i think we should stop talking about it because if you're going to watch veep finish at the end of the season five what's next half the reason we talked about it was that they ended the run it's finished now so there is an argument for going back and watching them all. A large chunk of them we really enjoyed. It's laugh out loud, ridiculous and funny. So we went to Tate Modern to look at the Olafur Eliasson exhibition In Real Life, which has just opened. We were lucky enough to see it before it opened. And we recorded the next segment talking about the exhibition in the members bar at the Tate Modern. So, so the sound might be a little bit funny, but it might not. It'll be all right. I'm good at this now. So we're here. <laughs> so we're here in the members bar in the Bravatsky building at Tate Modern, and we have just spent a pretty fucking joyful hour walking around Olafur Eliasson's exhibition in real life. This is an exhibition of over forty works of art from the nineties to now. Uh, You'll know him, he's the Danish Icelandic artist who he brought over lumps of ice and put it outside, put about 12 pieces of massive pieces of ice outside the Tate Modern recently and then the whole point was that people could go up and touch the ice, interact with the ice, put their tongue on the ice and then it would melt over time. So he's well into climate change, this bloke. Um, so this is an absolute fun house of an exhibition. It's right up my street. There's lots of light and texture. There's um, geometrical shapes that are huge. We've put some on Instagram. So if you go to at Brief or at Chris DT, you will see some of the uh, videos and 
and pieces that we liked very much. There's kaleidoscopic uh, works and optical illusions. He works with loads of um, ideas around geometrical shapes and what made me think of um, the flower of life and sacred geometry at the beginning. And then it just expands and expands and expands. And there's lots of colour and light and texture and things to walk into and observe and go back again and again and I love those sort of exhibitions but also he's an amazing painter so the th running theme through it is around nature and organ organic art if you like and texture and shiny things but he'll also make a spherical object out of wood or a beautiful painting or watercolour but it's organic and beautiful in its own way but his photographs of Iceland and melting ice are stunning as well it's just wonderful I'm so glad that you feel that way about it because I was walking around thinking I'm bewitched by this exhibition. It's so satisfying. I hope Reefer isn't finding it annoying. One end of the scale, you get these really big, high impact, but also kind of complicated and ambitious installations. So one of the high points, perhaps the high point, is this 30, 40 meter long corridor, which he's somehow filled with very thick mist. It's called Din Blinder Passenger, which means Your Blind Passenger. It's from 2010. It doesn't kind of have a texture, the mist, but it just means you can't see beyond the end of your arm. And it's brightly lit, and then the light changes colour, but you can't really see anything. And if you walk through it, I do wonder how crowded it's going to be, because people are going to want to go in this corridor. But you really want to get in there on your own. And it's kind of a very disconcerting walk. It was like a smoke machine effect, but so thick that there was another woman in the room with me. I actually had no grasp of how big the room was, so I walked in and thought in my head that it was a massive room and had to sort of breathe through the smoke, but I love that smell of smoke machine smell. And then I realised, oh, it's only about a metre and a half, two metres wide, the room. And there was a woman a bit further along and she sort of was like oh it's nice to see you so so like <laughs> we had this sort of weird conversation in this room and then suddenly she disappears yeah, and so that was a bit scary you get to see a figure emerging yeah. out of the mist yeah and there's a really clever one where he's installed water coming down one of the windows of the building on the outside so that when you are inside the exhibition you look out of this window you see everything as though it's really heavily raining through the window like really big kind of like thoughtful things like that and yet one of the one of the pieces of art is literally a candle on a circular base and that's the entire work of art. And of course there are a bunch of photographs which you mentioned, which are very simple but really powerful photographs of glaciers. So he goes from one extreme to another, and yet you still get a common thread in between that feels like it works. For me it's about art being accessible, people enjoying it for the shape and texture and colour, and they don't have to worry about like what does it mean? But there is deeper meaning, obviously, to all of these pieces. I didn't actually read any of the bits going round and chin straight. I just enjoyed the art. And there's a funny one where um, they've somehow installed like uh, a sort of bubble of perspex on one side. And Chris said to me, just stand there. I bumped my nose on it. <laughs> it was like a big, like, marble. And then Chris ran around the other side, it's a goldfish bowl, and so, so he puts his face near it. And it's just funny. These things are just interesting, funny, interactive things. There's a huge uh, sort of kaleidoscope that you walk in with all these sharp mirrors. 
it's going to be really popular but it also has this deeper meaning so there is a work um, what do you call it uh, like a war room where he's put up loads of like ideas and like a m- massive mood board and for me it could be that he falls into the category of artist or architect or um, provocateur but he's not like Heatherwick it's not a business for him he's definitely an artist because of that if that makes sense oh yeah I totally agree with that as well like there were traces when we first walked in that this was going to be a kind of Heatherwicky 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 sort of exhibition but you're completely right there is a countercultural underneath to this that Heatherwick doesn't have I like that they use so many of the different spaces so even in the lifts going up to the exhibition you're under this like completely acid yellow strip of light and then it's outside the uh, exhibition it's like we're on we're on alert we're on alert and maybe those are going to change to red alert later i don't know but it's just unnerving already as you're going in the lift to go up there we're all like drenched in like we all look like we've got jaundice or something in the lift Um, it's at the tate modern it's olafur iliason in real life it starts from the 11th of july to the 5th of january 2020 nice in London. In that London. What show is it all about now? Our final topic is the new stand-up special up on Netflix now by Aziz Ansari. It's called Right Now. That's what it's called, isn't it? And obviously, uh, last year, Aziz Ansari was anonymously accused in a newspaper in the United States of sexual misconduct and of being basically a pretty horrible person to go on a date with by someone who was into him and badly hated what happened. And so he has become a name attached to the Me Too movement. And this is his first special since then. What did you think of it, Aretha? So I don't really want to talk about the actual incident or the article, but I felt that it was a really sensitive, interesting stand-up. I think he's a really genuine person and it's an incredibly humble piece of work. He's directed by Spike Jones, and it's basically his stand-up. So he comes on stage and tells the story about what happened to him and how people recognise him in the street and talks about racism a little bit and how it's very interesting now that white people have discovered racism and how his year has been and going out with a white lady and it's a really frank, open discussion with the audience. It is absolutely laugh-out-loud hilarious. He talks about... Uh, whether we should still like Michael Jackson, whether we should still like R. Kelly, about what it's like being a celebrity. And it's just brilliant. And it's it's almost up there with Hannah Gadsby's Nanette. See, I can imagine, although we have a very lovely listenership, that if you were a really famous critic and you were writing in the New York Times and you compared that to what Hannah Gadsby does with her stand-up show. I said almost. You would get an astonishing amount of pushback, very aggressive. I know, but the thing is, it's like the the hierarchy of who do we support. It's like the privilege game. So one thing that was really interesting thread right through the show was this sense of a pushback against 
the current reaction to things online and the sense that uh, people can get, I guess, cancelled for something they've said or something they've done. Was there a sense of self-justification in that? Well, with stand-up, it's very difficult, isn't it? It's a medium where you draw on your life experiences and you turn them into stories and it's just you. So he has the microphone and he has, if I'm playing devil's advocate for myself, he has the microphone, he has the power. It ends very humbly and it ends with like, he knew his career could have been over and yet he's managed to pull it together and talk frankly about the whole scenario and the whole situation. Now when it happened, I said I wasn't gonna talk about it, but when it happened, I knew that his character in um, Parks and Rec, for example, and his stand-up when he was young, and he talks about that, some of it, was very different. And he's grown as a person, he's grown as an adult. And he explains, you know, that we all, all his friends and himself have checked themselves about how they treat women. And I challenge any bloke in the entire universe, and women too, that we may or may not have said and done things that we're not proud of in our lives, okay? Each individual thing has to be looked at. For example, he does that joke about, I always would say, thank you, I appreciate you being here, but I was always just saying what I'm supposed to say as a stand-up, and now I really do. And that felt completely authentic as a piece of, it, it was real. Also felt that a lot of the show was quieter than he's ever been. Like, it was a very quiet show. And I even mean, like, actual volume, like he's... Even his clothes that he's wearing, he comes on really casual in a Metallica shirt. He looks like he's lost weight. I mean, vulnerable. This is a genuine person. That's for me. It's like who you surround yourself with right now, and that's the point of the whole thing. It's like, right now, this is what's important for me. And he tells a really sweet story about his granny and all this stuff as well, which can be a bit cheesy, but, you know, I felt that it was quite genuine. And it's like, enjoy your life now, because it could all be taken away from you at any moment. And almost I've left you to do the praise. And almost that's an act of cowardice as well. I don't... I, I thought it was great. It was Did you laugh show. out loud? Yeah, totally. Well, there I thought you it was go. really funny. Moving on. I love that he engages with some of his own old material and goes, oh, well, you wouldn't do that now, would you? Especially the yeah. R. Kelly stuff. That yeah. was really good. There's also a couple of moments that are clearly spontaneous to shows. So maybe they filmed a run of three or four nights or something. But there are moments in there that are not part of whatever the, the show he's put together is. And he is both really good at that kind of crowd work stuff but there is some really nuanced beautiful things that someone has made a decision editorially to leave in anyway i think it's well worth watching if you're interested in him as a person if you liked master of none and you want to you want to feel good about stuff because sometimes you just want to watch something funny there'll be a swath of people who listen to this podcast who will decide the other way and will feel that they don't want to listen to they don't want to engage at all with Azeez Sanzari and I hope that's only a few people. I hope people do decide, especially if you were a fan of his before, I think I you'll was, really enjoy it. I, I was one over and I didn't really want to watch it. And when I first heard that he was doing a show about that, I was like, oh God. But I watched it and I felt it was genuine and I enjoyed it. And, you know, I, I, I support that decision of mine. <laughs> <laughs> Great decision you made yes. there. Uh, I agree so with is... myself. So on the Netflix, you can watch Aziz and Zari stand-up show called Right Now. What are you reading for? What are you reading for? What are you reading for? What are you reading for?
For the last don't, time don't in this, this series, don't do a silly voice. What are you reading, Rifa? Because I read slow, as you know, I have started reading a magazine that I bought in May, and it's a quarterly, and it's a sister magazine to Womankind called The New Philosopher. It's an edition called Finding Balance. It's so well written and it's a real nice glossy and it's got beautiful illustrations in it just like the other magazine. I actually bought it for Chris, thought he might enjoy it. But basically I'm in the middle of reading an article by Oliver Burkham called Your Shadow Self and it's about... Um, shadow self is the balance where you you might have uh, all good intentions to do something but then we all have a dark side that's like the little devil inside you that makes you do bad things or not be as good as you think you ought to be it's called new philosopher the edition i'm reading is may to july 2019 and it's the finding balance it's got a yin and yang type of illustration on the front edition 24 that is really good. I'm sorry I haven't got round to reading that magazine. I will read it at some point. Just I look just, at the pictures, um... mate. What are you reading, Chris? Well, I'm reading Benjamin Myers' non-fiction book. He's usually a novelist. I love his novels. He's the guy that wrote The Gallows Pole and Bee Stings and These Darkening Days. He's got a new actual proper novel coming out later this year, which I'm pretty excited about because it's the first one he's done since he got his big publishing deal because he's one of those guys that's tootled along on tiny publishing houses for years getting increasingly more and more acclaimed but never selling that many books and then because the gallows pole was so uniquely magnificent it won the walter scott prize which is a prize for the best historical novel of the year what do you get for that you get i mean you get a chunk of money it's one of the big prizes i think you might get 30 or 40 grand but you but because of that also the novel got much more widely noticed and because of that he got a proper publishing deal out of it so in the meantime i'm reading this book uh, it's called under the rock the poetry of a place and it's a beautiful kind of it's his kind of um, his take on nature writing but since he's a kind of gothic folk noir ruralist already it's still very earthy and noirish and it fits right into last episode I was talking about Robert McFarlane's Underland and this is kind of almost like a kind of indie dirty take on the same thing but specifying the land around Mythomroyd in West Yorkshire. Myers has a really earthy, quite charming voice, but it's charming in that beardy, blokey way. It's not charming in a kind of metropolitan way, and I really like it. So, uh, a bit of mud. <laughs> Sounds fancy. It's really great. Anyway, Under the Rock, The Poetry of a Place by Benjamin Myers. Also want to give a quick music nod i don't often do music nods but um my old pal billy liar who's a fantastic acoustic punk artist from scotland he's uh based in edinburgh or dundee or somewhere god knows where he lives he was in berlin for a while he's been around for a long time billy and we've toured together not very much but we toured together a little bit he's a lovely guy and he's got some amazing songs but what he didn't have for years like probably almost a decade was any like an actual record because he'd never made an album and I wondered if it was because he was quite a perfectionist and he wanted an album fully produced and didn't want to do like a lot of those acoustic punk artists will make records by sticking a microphone in their bedroom and just playing their tunes and he didn't want to do that anyway this summer he finally released after many years an album that he'd spent some time making it's called Some Legacy came out on Red Scare Industries so he got a proper label deal for it as well and this record is bloody brilliant and if you're into the kind of acoustic punk punk folk side or even just full-on punk side of um, 
of uh, uh, something or other, music, it's really worth a listen. He's a fantastic, heartbroken, clever, funny songwriter. He's got real depth to his lyrics, but he's also, he's made a really full on record. It's great. It's a very male heavy edition we did this week. That's actually a very good point. Well, if you're going to talk about Billy Liar, I'm going to just give a shout out to Louise Blackwell of um, Lookout, who has a company where they do artist mentoring and practical workshops. They recently did a year-round school programme of workshops and events and experiences to enhance young people's creative skills. This is their end-of-year show, and it's a really amazing initiative. They made some amazing art installations performances with these young people that really touched the whole audience so look out for look out they're a new company and based in brighton and um it's not my fault that there's lots of men though in the episode because it's not me that puts the episode together we put it together together when you can't not see it once you see it often your books that you like talk about are blokes who like walking around in mud that's all i'm saying End of episode. <laughs> I don't get a comeback. <laughs> <laughs> That's so not true. Oh my god. Thank you so much for listening to season two of Refigure. It's been amazing to have you along. Thank you for your comments and your jokes, and thank you very much, especially if you have given us nice ratings or left reviews where you're meant to leave reviews for podcasts. That is incredibly helpful and it makes our life easier and it helps these platforms distribute us a bit better. We're going to fuck off into the sunset for the rest of summer and come back probably at the beginning of autumn. Uh, with season three of course we're still going to be on the social medias you can talk to us on the facebook which is facebook.com slash refigure pod that's facebook.com slash refigure pod you can tweet us at refigure pod or you can tweet us individually as well oh yeah so you're at reefer r-i-f for freddy a reefer and you're chris tt at chris tt and then also there is a instagram which i have a lot of fun playing with which is at refigure uk let us know if there's things that you think that we should watch we always like recommendations and thank you so much for all your support and listening and just enjoying it and yeah we just really appreciate all your help Oh,